Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. Well, frankly, like Daniel Davis, uh, Colonel Daniel Davis has said at Defense Priorities, the Afghan war whistleblower um, has said, uh, this is uh, this is like this is a red line for them that we can't comprehend. This is a matter of national sovereignty. If they take this way more seriously than we ever could. And if we go to war with them over Taiwan, first of all, at best, we will lose um, ships, men and and, uh, you know, aircraft that the amount of the casualties would be worse than anything we've seen in Vietnam. And it would probably be much worse. And what basically what he lays out is the fact that China has the ability. Everybody needs to basically stop with this stuff, because if we do get close here to war with China, they have the ability to launch nukes that can hit U.S. cities with their three stage intercontinental ballistic missiles. Why are we you know, my point with this was always with the Giuliani moment thing is. First of all, just explaining the Asia pivot, explaining that we're provoking the crisis, explaining that, uh, you know, putting the shoe on the other foot the way we should with Russia and NATO expansion uh, and the situation in Ukraine uh, and, you know, tearing up all these arms treaties like Trump did and then uh, encircling these countries and preparing for war with them and simulating war with them just off their shores and just off their borders like we did to Russia constantly and lead up to this war in Ukraine. Um, and so the important thing, I think, is also for Republicans to realize that this is Barack Obama's project. This is Hillary Clinton's project. It's not your right wing, your favorite right wing talk show host or even Steve Bannon or any of these guys. You know, they, they talk a big game, but this is really Hillary Clinton's project. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica, so... If that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. I've been looking forward to this chat for a little bit. It's been, I think, 80 episodes since I've had Connor on. Um, I had him on with uh, our mutual friend, Pat, and uh, Kyle Anzalone as well. So uh, um, I saw him on Reed's show, and I decided, okay, well, I should follow through because he's one of the uh, greatest voices against the Empire. So, uh, uh, Connor, how you doing today, dude? I'm doing great, Kyle. Thank you very much for that introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, dude, of course. Well, we were just kind of shooting the shit off air. Um, I guess before we start diving in there, give a uh, introduction. And actually, I don't think I've ever heard you let your story, but what kind of got you into the libertarian stuff and then strictly into foreign policy? Yeah, sure. So um, um, my name is Connor Freeman. I'm the assistant editor at the Libertarian Institute, and uh, I co-host Conflicts of Interest with Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter and uh, do a lot of news writing at the Institute and at Antiwar.com now. And 
I um, let's see my story. I mean, basically, I grew up a Republican sort of in the neoconservative days. I think I was five when 9-11 happened. Remember the day. Mm-hmm. Remember all the fear and paranoia. Um, you know, grew up with Fox News on in the house a lot. And, uh, you know, I was political, but basically just kind of like, oh, my f- this side of my family that I identify with or whatever is Republican. So I'm a Republican. So I get in arguments with the kids who are Democrats at school and this kind of thing. And I mean, like when I was in like third grade, uh, <laughs> so really stupid arguments if I could go back and listen to them. But um, uh, over time, basically, I think in high school, I was like, you know what, maybe I'll try out being a Democrat. And I think to me, what that meant was watch John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And that lasted about a month before I realized because I'm a big comedy fan. So the fact that they weren't funny anymore didn't really. And then I just I stumbled on Bill Hicks, the comedian, who's to me, like still my lodestar in many ways. Um, He died at 32. Super uh, influential in stand up. uh, But really, I mean, to me, he was the most pure, like almost. I mean, he really was like an anti-imperialist. And the first time I ever encountered anyone really like that. Um, and I just stumbled across his videos on YouTube because I was really into o- older stand-up like Kinnison and stuff like that. So I found him. He was from Texas. And I had never heard the term military military industrial complex. Uh, he was talking about the Iraq war. Of course, he was talking about Iraq war one. And just, I mean, really painting a picture of the empire in a way that i had never ever heard talking about drugs and freedom and 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 all kinds of uh elements of like his philosophy that are all things that were very new to me and very impressive and around the same time i got into libertarianism and i think i was listening to people like kokesh and stefan molyneux back in the day and even alex jones and none of that really I found them interesting for different reasons. But and I and I basically agreed with their premise. Like, anarcho-capitalism, for whatever reason, was never a difficult thing for me to adjust to. Like I didn't have some big aha moment except knowing that it's an it's an option philosophically. Yeah. And uh to me, I was already like uh into this kind of like looking at the military industrial complex and also into some conspiracy stuff so my my sort of and knowing about the police state and the i mean the nsa revelations had just come out and it was the era of edward snowden and stuff like this and uh, the war in syria and so to me it was just like well if you if you just take away the power these people have that's the only way to get them to stop that's the only way to keep yourself safe and everybody else safe from uh, you know, what they, their goals, which are to build a world empire, which are to uh, enslave all of us and uh, take away all of our freedoms. And so that just made total sense to me. It wasn't a, it didn't take me uh, long, but for whatever reason, I just didn't really latch onto it until I stumbled on Dave Smith uh, on Ari Shafir's podcast, again, another standup. And they did an episode in late September of 2013 called Fuck the Government. And it was before part of the problem was a big show. Mm-hmm. And I, li- he, for whatever reason, I think he started talking about the Austrian school and Murray Rothbard. And he was talking about foreign policy in a way I hadn't heard for whatever reason, libertarians talk uh, that way about it in, in the past. And the way, he's, the way he was talking about cops, the way he's talking about Austrian business cycle theory. I don't know if he used that term at the time, but you know, and I just got pretty interested in this. I started listening to part of the problem. And then within a week, I remember I got into Tom Woods and I learned who Murray Rothbard was and who the Mises Institute was and about Mises and Hayek and Lou Rockwell. And from then on, it was just, it was like that. So I started listening to a bunch of this stuff, bought a bunch of Ron Paul books, some Chomsky. And then um, I was basically a, 
an ANCAP Rothbardian libertarian for a couple of years. And then some point in uh, when I was in uh, community college, I got into uh, Scott Horton's show and antiwar.com and the Ron Paul. I was listening to a lot of Ron Paul Liberty Report, I think just before that. And uh, once I started reading antiwar.com and listening to Scott's show, it just like the one thing I, I as far as the division of labor and the libertarian movement that I have is I'm a good writer. So I got into that. I never expected to be a podcaster, never expected to be a big public speaker or anything. But I just started writing articles for the Institute and I got a little sidetracked, some other things with some other jobs. And I came back in late 2020 and then things just kind of took off from there. But I've been essentially only focused on foreign policy in my work and almost in my uh, even in my my spare time of any kind of research or interest in politics. I lost a long a while ago at some point I just stopped to be honest with you sympathizing with Americans so much um somewhere during the Trump era and uh <laughs> and so I basically uh just decided and I think it's basically right cuz uh I never forgot Rothbard's private correspondence from the late 50s where he says that the key to the whole libertarian business is the war and peace issue and he was talking about the cold war and he said it, and he was basically saying that it's our policy that's responsible for it, our aggressive policy. And so my basic sort of um, mission statement uh, for myself is that we can't really roll back the state here at home to any significant degree unless we fully address the empire and roll back its uh, wars overseas and all of the and all the bases and all the economic wars. Um, and the Cold Wars, I don't think that we can even manage a political revolution here of any level, uh, of any real substance, until we reduce the power of government that way uh, first. It seems to me almost logically like obvious that you would have to go that route, um, because um, right now we've tried it the other way and we're almost at war with Russia, China and Iran at the same time. <laughs> So, <laughs> but that's how I got interested. It was, it was the Yemen war. It was, uh, learning about, um, just, you know, who, who are we backing in Afghanistan for 20 years? You know, who are the Northern Alliance, uh, you know, uh, learning about Nazis in Ukraine and, and apartheid in Palestine and how Iran doesn't even have nukes. And yet we've been at economic war with them for decades and we're constantly, you know, attacking uh, their uh, nuclear energy program and Israel is carrying out assassinations. All these things just blew my mind. And then once I started reading Dave DeCamp, especially in 2020 at antiwar.com and listening to uh, Media Roots Radio and Robbie Martin talking about the new Cold War with China, I was like, okay, well, then this is what I'm going to do. And I've just, I've been focused on that ever since. Um, it's the most interesting aspect of libertarianism and of what's going on right now to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know what's funny is that the anti-war stuff kind of actually came last for me. Um, I consider myself an anarchist for the longest time, but I just kind of – I grew up a lot like you, right? My dad was a Republican. My mom was a Republican. Even though they divorced um, – when I, well, they were never married, but they split up when I was relatively young. They both were very, very pro-Trump and pro-Republican people, and I was always told, hey, we vote for Republicans. And they were never like, hey, you have to do this, but they just kind of – it was very obvious, right? My dad was a mechanic and a small business owner. Um, I've been an automotive technician for 10 years. So I grew up around boomer cons. It was just largely kind of already there. Like the pro foreign policy kind of stuff was kind of baked into the cake. 
And then about four years ago, it, it finally started dawning on me because that was around when I heard Dave Smith, funny enough. And then um, <laughs> it, it, it seems so obvious. But then like when you I heard it put out that way, I'm like, oh, yeah perhaps killing people in other countries is wrong. And then, you know, over like the last, I want to say maybe two or three years, I started listening to Peter Schiff a lot. And it's funny how this kind of all came to fruition for me, but um, there was this hawkishness about China. And you and I talk a lot about this. Um, I talk a lot about this with Pat and Dave DeCamp as well. Um, he had started talking about these trade deficits with China and how Trump was just blasting China. And I remember just thinking, this is kind of weird that we're so focused on China, but we seem to be benefiting at the behest of China, where um, we we print dollars up and we send them those dollars, which is just debt, and then we get stuff in return. So this seems like a pretty good deal. So why is everybody demonizing China? And then that is kind of what led me down the rabbit hole of like, okay, well, we're being lied to about this, then what else is kind of going on here? So um, eventually it led me to learn about you and Pat and everybody else. And then I finally figured out, oh, so really a lot of the China stuff is actually bullshit. Um, yeah. We've been fed so much propaganda. And once again, the one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because it really seems like everybody's propagandized on this. Like there is nobody in government right now who's going on this. Thomas Massey is like good, but he's not great because there was a clip of him on the news saying, oh, I commend Nancy Pelosi for standing up to China, the yeah. CCP. I'm like, what the hell is going on? This is like- So I was like yelling at the TV when that happened. And I then I heard you and Dave and Pat talk about yeah. play it on your show. And uh, yeah, no, that was bad. That was really bad, especially like as Dave points out, because he's he's the guy, you know, when you read antiwar.com and there's some new bill about sanctioning China or selectively decoupling or yeah. some new uh, policy. Massey's the only guy who votes against all of it. Mm -hmm. He's the only one. And it wouldn't be that hard to just take a stand and say, no, I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah. to send nancy pelosi over there right now i mean yeah. i think what he said was oh maybe she should take a civilian plane and then kennedy just seemed like i like her but she seemed like she was just in a completely different realm of reality than we are where she's like well pff, we've been appeasing china maybe it's time we start playing a little poker yeah well like, like oh. <laughs> we, we were talking off air a little bit about some of the uh, twitter arguments that we get into but um it, it's really surprising to me that all the people that will be the first ones to tell you that the fbi lied about everything about trump calling him a russian asset will be the same ones to believe absolutely everything they say about china and then go on to say that joe biden is beijing biden when he has been without a doubt clearly the most hawkish president on china like yeah. it, there's no debate and i i get into it with people about this and they're saying oh they're buying up our land and all this other stuff and it's funny because like I said, these claims, oftentimes they fall apart under the slightest bit of scrutiny. So um, I literally just did a Google search, who owns all the farmland in America? And China, um, you can look it up, they own like 194,000 acres, which is like, okay, well, that's a lot of property. But you look at, um, you look at everything percentages, else. Yeah. yeah, you literally look at everything else. The government owns 60%. Yeah, the government that locked you in your home and would send you to die in Ukraine or Taiwan but it's a big deal if China owns literally like less than a half of 1% of our farm. Like just when you start looking yeah. at all this shit, it's like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> yeah. And then the rest of a bunch of it is other foreign governments or Bill Gates or whoever. And you're just like. Globalists yeah. are okay, but not China. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
And it's uh, well, the most disturbing part of it is too. And, and Pat and I are working on a project about this right now. Oh, and, I, um, I think you've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like the most one of the things I'm trying to think about is how to tell right wingers and frankly, libertarians who soften their position on this, either because they don't pay attention to it or because they want to um, sort of appeal to the right. Which I think, and I don't know about, we can talk about this and what you think, and, and maybe I'm missing something, mm -hmm. but I don't think that just sort of like softening ourselves up for the, to get the right, certain right-wingers to like us is ultimately going to make that much sense when it comes time to run a national race, because mm -hmm. it seems like they would just say, well, get out of the way. You're, you're spoiling it for us. Uh, you know, like when we, I mean, that's always, that's weird. We're hearing that from libertarians right now. Um, I mean, I hear that all the time about the LP guy running against Blake Masters in Arizona. Um, and uh, Blake Masters is another one who you should talk to Robbie Martin about him uh, because I don't know <laughs> enough about Blake, but he's, he's you know, he's Peter Thiel's um, protege, CEO, COO at Thiel Capital. And he's, you know, Peter Thiel's his multi-decade CIA, DOD, Pentagon, or excuse me, CIA, Pentagon, um, NSA, FBI contractor. Oh. And he hates China. And, uh, and Masters, man, is so, ugh, you don't know any, we don't know anything about him mm -hmm. and you're supposed to just support him. And if you don't, you're not, all the right libertarians say you're not a, a good libertarian. Okay. So we don't uh, want you. One thing I want to pitch to you, because this is the way that it was pitched to me. Um, there was an article where he said that he was reading anti-war back in like 2007, 2008. And for me, because I'm a health guy, he's talking about doing all this CrossFit stuff. So this is the way that it was pitched to me by people who are populists. And I'm like, holy shit, like this dude admits to being a Rothbardian and reading anti-war news. To me, he sounds pretty good, right? And there is a lot of stuff like common ground that we have with populist right-wingers. But um, as you and I have kind of elaborated throughout the show, we have to take a firm stand against this China hawkishness. So yeah. um, kind of fill in the blanks here because I was told that uh, somebody here in this call was working on a piece about him. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in what you came up with because I don't know anything about him either. Oh, yeah. I'm not working on a piece about Blake himself. Um, okay. I may down the road. My, my problem with Blake most of all is um, – I appreciate, I think he said that like in 2007 or something, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm not mistaken, the stuff he's reading LRC and uh, antiwar.com and, yeah. and the Mises Institute and stuff like this. The only, here's my issue is I don't know if he changed once he started working uh, for Thiel. Um, he says that a lot of these Thiel back guys are uh, the guys that Thiel backs, like Joe Kent. They say that China, Kent is very obvious because if you go to his campaign site, you can see he says, China's already declared war on us and we need to act accordingly. We need to build a coalition of nations to confront them on their genocide. We need to impose heavy sanctions on them. Uh, you know, I think Blake Masters website, which last time I checked, he's deleted much of this and there's even less about foreign policy on there now. There wasn't much to begin with, but basically his pitch was like, why are we in Syria when we should be combating china the real enemy we need a real foreign policy that's re that's actually tough on china we need to get serious about china and we're not and uh the problem with masters from libertarian my perspective with libertarians is i can't find evidence and i'm open to people proving me wrong because i go to these camp you go to the campaign site that's where a lot of this stuff should be um you would think but there's no i've never seen him say he wants to reduce the defense budget 
I've never seen him say he wants to end sanctions on X country. I've never seen him discuss the Asia pivot. And that's the real problem with all these right wingers is that they never, ever address the fact that we have encircled China with hundreds of bases that were sending in aircraft carriers. Uh, it last year, Biden did it 10 times. Aircraft court, uh, carrier strike group deployments. So we just sailed a warship with another Canadian warship to the Taiwan Strait today. Kyle and I have an article up at the Institute right now about that. Uh, Biden does this every month. We have troops openly deployed to the island of Taiwan, training them for war with the mainland. Uh, we have Biden flew 2,000 sorties of military planes in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and the LC, more than 2,000 before uh, the end of November. Uh, and, and that month, it was like nearly 100 of these just in one month in the South China Sea. Um, can we even imagine what it would be like if China did that to us? Uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, or near yeah. the near the New York coast or something. And then you've got, um, you know, we have these Navy ocean surveillance vessels uh, that are in the South China Sea virtually all the time now. Um, it's, uh, I mean, you could talk about AUKUS. You could talk about the fact that they're trying to build an East Asian NATO with the quadrilateral security dialogue. Mm. The fact that, and India is an interesting one because it's hard to tell exactly what direction they're going to go on all this. I hope they do break away from the quad. And they're certainly not going along with the economic war against Russia. And they're getting closer with Russia. Uh, and they did just do military drills recently with China. But we trained with them, um, you know, uh, in the Himalayas recently, training them for war with China. Uh, and um, so there is, um, you know, there's this huge ramp up to prepare for war with China. It's called the Asia pivot. And it's, it's the idea is they're shifting two thirds of all area of all air and naval forces uh, to the Asia Pacific surrounding China. It's the largest military buildup since world war II, And we constantly are stepping all over this one China policy, which is their red line. It's, it's, you know, Taiwan is a part of China, but we keep acting. We keep, uh, supporting these independence forces, which is something we never used to do. There's a great piece by Gareth Porter at the Gray Zone about this, about how it, the change actually came in the Obama administration, where they started, they never would have allowed someone like Tsai Ing-wen to become president because she's too hawkish, she's too pro-independence, and it could cause a serious issue across the Taiwan, you know, in the Strait. And, um, but the Americans decided after this pivot got launched, and it was launched, by the way, by Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and Barack Obama and and uh, Kurt Campbell, who is now the top Asia official. He's the national security coordinator for, for, for uh, Asia. He's the architect of the Asia pivot. This is Biden's right-hand man on China. And actually, Biden this weekend, the 60 Minutes uh, interview aired. Where he said for the fourth time that we're committed to defending Taiwan if they're attacked by China, which we continue to accelerate that process. It's just you a know, gaff, though. That's what we're supposed to believe. Well, Campbell said it. What Campbell said it wasn't. Uh, let me find the quote for you because Campbell, um, it was in Reuters today. I found it because Dave uh, DeCamp posted it on Twitter, and then we just put it in this article. So yeah, I think I was. Uh, I think I might have breezed through that article that you're talking about. But where you're pulling that up. Um, yeah, he says, I do not believe that it is appropriate to call the remarks that came from the White House today as walking back the president's remarks. Mm -hmm. Biden's remarks speak for themselves. I do think our policy has been consistent and is unchanged and will continue. So he said essentially that it wasn't retracted. And um, 
it's it's i mean they're doing the, even the reuter the the white house spokesperson or whatever that spoke to reuters goes yeah well he does this you know he did it recently in tokyo and as pat showed i mean um the 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 reaction from china they started sort of uh they started um there was more military activity around the island after that incident um when he said this in tokyo on his sort of um banner visit to asia and it was all about rallying these countries against china and uh of course pelosi's visit triggered the largest exercises around the island we've ever seen right. uh and so we're getting much much closer to an actual war occurring because this is as much of a red line for china as ukraine is for russia if not more so uh because this is actually a part of their of their country as peter van buren shows they have this you know, insanely robust trade relationship. These people are all kin. Um, you know that that there's a constant, tr you know, planes flying back and forth from the island to the mainland. Um, and it's there's no reason like they they have waited forever. I mean, well, since the since the long since they got nukes, and certainly since Mao took power, they never went and tried to reconquer the island. Uh, so they're perfectly content, just like Hong Kong, to wait the long game, and they prefer to reunify peacefully. And our policy essentially takes that off the table and, and increases the likelihood of war tenfold. And they just they keep ramping it up. The Taiwan Policy Act of 2022 that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee just advanced is the major powder keg. Yeah. Um, and I can find another quote for you, too, that the American ambassador just told Wendy Sherman, if you do this, it's going to basically our relationship with the United States is going to completely basically end because mm -hmm. it, it would be, a, I mean, as much of a it would be like if um, China, let's say one state in the United States wanted to uh, secede. And we obviously wouldn't allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. And then China comes along and goes, we're making you a uh, a major ally. Right. We're going to give you all this military aid. You have the right, you know, you basically, well, what did Biden say recently? He goes, our policy hasn't changed. They are yeah. making, they get to make their own decisions about independence. You're like, that's not how that works. <laughs> it hasn't been policy since what, 79? Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, no, it's absolutely crazy. And Biden, yeah, has ramped up just numerically all mm. of those military provocations way over what Trump ever did and i was watching that stuff in 2020 and virtually nobody was paying attention to it because it was going on during the covid crisis um but as soon as he came into office he sent aircraft carried to the south china sea and warships to the taiwan strait and warplanes and all this stuff so it's been going on this entire time and the chinese were warning about it as soon as april they were like you know the war the warplanes have gone up the presence around us uh american warplanes has gone up by 40 percent and the warships have increased by 20 percent and um, that's a defense ministry spokesman just laying it right out for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, the American people have no idea that that's going on. Just yeah. like with the buildup with Russia, there's just this total disconnect. And, uh, you know, actually, I, Scott, I heard talk on a show recently about how there was a study done. And most Americans think when they look at a map, they think Taiwan is Australia. <laughs> so you can imagine, <laughs> you know, or some large number of americans yeah. that like, disturbingly large like the amount of americans who think iran has nukes and don't know about israel's nukes. yeah yeah, that, yeah. that's that, that's always been the funniest stuff to me is um 
and I recently learned a little bit more about Israel. There was a Quinn Driggs on a Reed show and the Israel issue was always kind of confusing to me because I never quite understood it, but I thought she laid it out very, very well. So um, everybody listen, make sure you go check out that show. Um, just cause I thought that was like a really, really good ground level view for anybody to kind of just get a basic understanding of Israel. But yeah, that's always been funny that the populist right are now awful on like the two biggest issues now like everybody and their mothers against middle east wars now like nobody cares about that while we're still drone bombing the living shit out of them one thing that's kind of annoyed me too is that when you hear people talk about trump and drone strikes is that they say oh he bombed syria and that's it but they don't understand like the drone strikes went up over 400 percent throughout his presidency i mean there were more civilian civilian casualties i think in his first two years than all of obama's eight years and i'm no foreign policy expert but when i hear somebody say that they're anti-war and trump is this anti-war president um i, I think that involves not completely murdering people via drone strike to the tune of you know 400 percent of obama of all fucking people yeah. Well, yeah. And he set records for the numbers of bomb dropped and bombs dropped in Afghanistan from like, I believe, 2018 to 2019. There's something like 15,000 bombs that we know of that went down right. and uh, set records for the numbers of bombs dropped in Yemen and Somalia and Afghanistan. Um, and of course, you know, gave Israel everything they wanted vis-a-vis -vis Palestine. The thing about Syria that's a great point because the other thing I've noticed to your, I mean, it's like to answer why that happens, I think, is because it's like, what are the high profile bombings? They only talk about like when he bombed Damascus twice in April of 2017 and April 2018 mm -hmm. uh, or bombed, you know, the Syrian government over the uh, phony gas attacks. Right. Those are the things that they pay attention to. Israel bombs Syria every week, no, sometimes yeah. more than every week. Right. And uh, they just bombed the Damascus uh, airport again recently and killed actually killed some people i think they killed five people i can go double check that but mm -hmm. uh recently they put the uh damascus airport totally out of commission they bombed the only other runway that was working that they hadn't bombed yet and um yeah they just killed five soldiers in an, in an attack on the airport mm -hmm. and uh and they blew up the other runway this was earlier this year back in june and they a report just came out that uh i think it was the un aid shipments had to be halved for two weeks um, then they hit the Aleppo uh, airport, the airport in Aleppo. Uh, they're constantly doing this, and it's been well over a thousand. I mean, it's been hundreds since the war began, but it's it, by now that's an that's years old. And I'm telling you, it's every week. And Jason Ditz covers it every time at antiwar.com, or Dave DeCamp does. Yeah. And um, you know, we have them under the some of the worst sanctions regimes in history. It's called the Caesar Act sanctions, and it targets deliberately construction and engineering and has all these secondary sanctions so that anybody of any of any nationality who tries to work with Syria or tries to help them rebuild after the war, which is going to cost them hundreds of billions of dollars that they do not have, uh, it would be impossible. Um, we are, you know, because Blinken said specifically, Secretary of State Blinken under, under Biden, Freud and Slip, under Biden, because uh, he's like Pompeo, uh, he's like uh, Rena Pompeo. I used to call him in my articles. <laughs> so he goes. He said uh, our policy is that um, we will not lift the sanctions until there is a political settlement with Assad. Essentially, leave well, regime change is what he said. Yeah. And um, 
that's the policy. And then, um, you know, we occupy a third of the country. I don't know how many people realize that, but that's, you know, we occupy a third of the country. They don't allow people to, the Kurds and the Americans do not allow people to take wheat from the U.S. occupied areas and sell it in government uh, controlled areas. And, uh, and, and there's been reports that came out earlier this year where people are saying, the farmers are saying, look, they're breaking our backs. You know, we're just devastated economically over here. And um, they've just, I mean, they've destroyed the country. They killed well over half a million people with the CIA dirty war backing Al-Qaeda. And that's how um, one of the main reasons that ISIS even got created in the first place. And then, uh, or the caliphate, I should say. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, no one ever talks about, I never hear anybody say, uh, except in the, in the real anti-war movement, that we ought to end these sanctions on Syria and we should and look, we should if people if the right wing doesn't like bombing Syria, then end all aid to Israel. Like do it now because oh, you that, can't do that. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Russians can't even stop them from bombing Syria. They they yeah. get they get really mad about it. And sometimes they help um, Syria upgrade their missile, their air defenses. Mm -hmm. um, but nothing really ever changes. They It just it always happens. And in fact, um. You know, Trump actually, I'll never forget, in early February of 2018, um, some Russian mercenaries who were embedded with the Syrian Arab army got a little too close to the parts of Syria that we illegally occupy mm -hmm. uh, with the Kurds. And Trump just, his military just bombed these guys, uh, went uh, absolutely uh, destroyed them and killed, they said killed hundreds and hundreds of people, hundreds of Russian mercenaries is what the reports in the mainstream media were saying, Reuters and all this. And they had military commanders coming out going, oh yeah, we killed hundreds, hundreds. And then later on, the Russian foreign ministry spokesman came out and said, it was really more like five, but yeah, that did happen. What's going on, guys? Um, we're going to take a quick break from the show to tell you about these show sponsors and the way that you can support me and this podcast. Um, I'm sponsored by Axe and Sledge. I don't really focus in here, but uh, right here in my hand, I have their um, The Grind, which is essential amino acids and hydration. Um, feel free to check it out. Um, this is your mom's sweet peach. They have some awesome flavors and awesome names. They also have multivitamins, fat burners, creatine, beta-alanine. Beta um, all sorts of different supplements to help you get all jacked and tan and help you become a person more full of uh, liberty and health as this show is about. So um, if you want to support me and support this podcast, then feel free to go to axandsledge.com and check out um, all their great supplements there and use code MATOVIC10, that's M-A-T-O-V-C-I-K-1-0 at checkout for a little discount and to let them know I sent you their way. All right, everybody. Thanks. Now back on to the show. And, um, so it's, you know, that was one of the first times where I got alerted this. It's such a powder keg. I mean, we could see, you know, World War III start in Syria. And so yeah. but everybody acts like it's one of these forever wars now. Um, and it used to be on every, the front of everybody's mind, but I think they've almost the way Biden came in and just re and just continued the whole Trump policy. Instead of saying we're there to steal the oil, they said, we're here to protect the Kurds. You know, it's a humanitarian thing yeah. that we're starving uh, the Syrians to death and taking their land and all this and their and their wheat uh, and their oil. Um, they said that um, they're doing it to protect the Kurds and the policy hasn't changed. And it seems like the American people just kind of have, have largely forgotten about Syria. But it's, you know, like I said, the... Um, the devastation of the country continues. Uh, and, you know, there's still Turkey is still backing our NATO ally is still backing Al Qaeda in the Idlib province and attacking the Kurds in the north. And we shouldn't be there at all. But uh, 
you know, actually the Israelis have said to Biden multiple times, basically, you're not leaving Syria and you're not leaving Iraq. And uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think Trump never left either, um, because he was so beholden to the Zionists and to Sheldon Adelson. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he could have never come through on virtually any of his promises. In fact, Scott's book, Enough Already, has a great quote from Norman Podhoritz, one of these old school arch neocons. And he says in there, basically, he goes, you know, a lot of the Zionists, they'll never admit this. A lot of the American, uh, I forget how he phrases it, but he goes, I'll never admit this. But one of the biggest, the biggest thing we have to guard against is Vietnam syndrome. He said it in 1979 or something like that. <laughs> he's like, or late 70s. And he's like, you know, because America has to basically be the world empire so that they can protect Israel and Israel can do whatever it wants. And we have to make sure that America is constantly engaged in the world uh, or that America is uh, basically to protect Israel on that basis. And so I, I think there's a huge agenda here and it doesn't matter if it's coming from the Israelis or if it's coming from neocons or whoever these infiltrators on the new right um they're they have to adjust because the American people have Afghanistan syndrome the American people are becoming more anti-war but we we're a very malleable people and we have short attention spans and we can be manipulated very easily and so in many ways the Trump administration's kind of you know, even the fact that he tried to pull out of Syria twice and was rolled, it's almost like, you know, it sends a message that like, yeah, you not only do the American people not have the power to end these wars, the president doesn't. Uh, and we all know that now. Also, I think psychologically, just off topic, I think it's also it is kind of weird that we're adjusting to the fact that the president is like half dead and in a coma, you know, like that's She's very bizarre corpse, in and of itself. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh no, I, th I think um, I think the Trump, the big lesson of that, too, of the Trump administration is just how much he accelerated the new Cold Wars with Russia and China. And you yeah. can blame that on Russiagate if you want, but you can't do that when it comes to the China stuff. Right. And I think that it would be a mistake to just blame it on the Russiagate stuff, because it seems like basically each administration gets worse and worse and worse as time goes on. And they do have this plan uh, that goes back to Wolf, Paul Wolfowitz and the 1992 defense planning guidance and the PNAC documents. Um, they believe the neoconservatives that we are the, you know, this is our unipolar moment. And even if it's fleeting now, we have to stick to the plan. We dominate the planet and we have to repress militarily the rise of Russia and China and expand all these uh, alliances in the Middle East and increase all this spending, particularly on the Air Force and the Navy uh, and missiles and all this. And so, I mean, we're up against a huge power structure that, I mean, these guys have um, machinations that would make like a James Bond villain blush. Yeah, dude, that's a, Jesus Christ, is a hell of a way to put it too. Um, one thing that you kind of wised me up on was uh, – I remember seeing a story about Biden supposedly giving money to Iran and you were the one that actually really set it in motion. Anytime I see somebody talking about Iran, I usually know they're full of shit because the <laughs> amount of propaganda that comes from Israel about Iran is absolutely insane. So pretty much anytime I see anybody saying, oh, we gave money to Iran, I assume that it's normally – um, we took sanctions off of Iran or we did something that Israel didn't want us to do with yeah. Iran. That, that's kind of what I've concluded there. Right. Oh, that piece you sent me was hilarious yeah. because uh, it was in, I was at Newsweek or something. It was Naftali Bennett, the uh, former prime minister. Tweeted from a libertarian. Guy. 
from a libertarian. Yes, yes, a libertarian was promoting this without any scrutiny. <laughs> and uh, and he goes, uh, they're going. The deal is going to. What do he say? A quarter of a trillion dollars? Or yeah, say, yeah. It, it was, was the, give him some ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, <laughs> a quarter of a trillion dollars are going to Iran to fund their terrorism. And this libertarian spokesman was saying, I don't know, man. Like you know, Biden's weak. He's making all these deals with Iran. Say what you will about Trump, but he wouldn't have done this shit. You know, something like this. And you're just like, man, you can't just you're taking the Israeli, the former Israeli prime minister at his word, the guy who bombed Gaza and killed 250 people and like 70 children who lies about everything. That's the guy. The Abraham Accords, bro. Oh, yeah. Peace. Peace in the (laughs) Middle East. I forgot. I forgot. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah i love that oh god i love that or that because oh. you know what man um yeah i even heard sam cedar recently saying uh he was analyzing that conversation with dave smith and tim pool and even sam cedar who's supposed to be the big neoliberal caricature and he is but he was going the abraham accords that's just preparing for war with iran and he goes, they're throwing the Palestinians under the bus and it's all this military welfare and shit. But he's like, they're preparing for war with Iran. And he's right. I mean, Biden's administration has tried to expand that. Um, the Israelis are trying to build this mini NATO style alliance to surround Iran based on the Abraham Accords. You know, all these phony normalization deals between countries that didn't have any beef. It was just basically they would agree to normalize with Israel and, and accept Israeli apartheid and the fact that there's no two state solution and no rights for the Palestinians, but they don't care because the Americans are going to sell you a bunch of F-35s and Reaper drones. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, um, I think, oh, the point about that, that number that Bennett was throwing around, that came from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is one of the most ardent, <laughs> most powerful, notorious anti-Iran neoconservative think tanks. Shocking. Yeah. And uh, and they were just pulling that number out of their ass. They were just saying basically that if we lift sanctions on Iran and they're able to sell their oil, they're going to be able to make all this money. If you unfreeze their assets that uh, that belong to them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they then they're going to have all this money. They're going to be able to invest. They're going to be able to sell oil. And then ergo, they'll they'll give it all to, you know, the IRGC and whoever they're saying Hamas or they're probably saying, you know, the Houthis or whatever, yeah. um, Hezbollah, uh, terror and stuff in the Middle East is what that we hear from Congress and all these guys constantly. But basically all they were saying was that they're going to be able to sell their oil and they'll be able to make money because they will no longer be crushed under the maximum pr- Biden, Biden's maximum pressure campaign, uh, which currently Iran is, um, <clears throat> you know, half of their people live below the poverty line. Uh, they, their inflation rate is somewhere between 40 and 50%. Oh. There's horrible, uh, medical shortages going on. Uh, people with cancer, uh, hemophilia, AIDS, HIV, uh, multiple sclerosis, people just getting devastated. Uh, you have, um, food insecurity in some areas has reached 60%. Um, and you know, you see bread riots and things like this sometimes over the price of wheat or over the, you know, and it's absolutely devastating. But we know that this is what the Americans want to see in these countries. Um, Biden's one of his original um point men on Iran was this guy, Richard Nephew, who uh called himself a sanctions artist because during the Obama years, uh Max Blumenthal has a great piece about this. The guy wrote a book about how proud he was, about how he was able to destroy the Iranian economy. And make mm-hmm. put automobile make so people can't afford cars. They can't fix their cars. He drives up the prices of food so that they're prohibitively expensive during holidays. Um, creates all kinds of civil unrest. Uh, he goes and we can make things a little bit more sticky that way. And uh, the guy is just an absolute sociopath. But uh, one of the first things, um, 
I think he might have been dep- deputy envoy or something like this. I forget exactly what his title was. But uh, Biden brought him in as soon as he came into office and said, you're my man on a run. And his envoy was Robert Malley, who's been very weak uh, and hasn't been able to seal the deal because he doesn't want to, clearly. Um, but uh, that was extremely aggressive in itself. And one of the first things Biden did when he came into office, is he just flew a B-52 over the Persian Gulf in a message to Iran. Um, but yeah, they're constantly lying, man. They have to through their teeth. All this stuff about um, as soon as Iran, as soon as Raisi, the new president, Ibrahim Raisi, came into power um, after they the the Biden administration told the moderate regime that made the original deal. Uh, when they came in, they said in May, Trita Parsi wrote a piece about this months later, where apparently because he's got great sources, but he found out that they had told him, they had told Raisi's negotiating team um, led by this guy, Ali Bagari Khani. They told him, uh, no, no, that would, that's, I'm sorry. That's the new negotiator. Anyway, they told the moderates, if you return to your obligations under the deal and we return to the deal because you're still in it, you know, we aren't the Americans (laughs) illegally left. So if we lift sanctions and you're still in compliance, we can always just reimpose them anyway. And what kind of a message does that send to Iran? You know? Yeah, and, and the funniest part about this whole situation to me is that people are still hawkish in Iran, like they're gonna do something. Their GDP, I think, is like I think it was 0.2 or like two percent of ours. And on top of that, every single time we ask them to do something, they like go above and beyond to do whatever we ask them yeah. just so we can re-enter the deal. And then then they say, Oh, well, they're gonna develop nukes. Well, we're certainly giving them a whole hell of, this is the Ron Paul argument. We're giving them a whole hell of a lot of reason to if we're going to sit here and just sanction the fuck out of them over and over and over again. And they're literally showing compliance at every single turn. And they even lowered the bar where they said, hey, we don't care if this, you know, if you guys return to the deal and don't guarantee it to the next administration. If you could just get Biden to say, hey, you'll we'll come to the deal. We're cool with that. But for some reason, we just can't meet them anywhere. We keep just fucking smacking them harder and harder and harder. Yeah, it, it's, oh, it's the so bizarre to me. The process has been wild uh, recently. So um, basically, the Israelis this year, the Israelis launched a massive assassination campaign starting in late May, yeah. uh, using probably the Mujahideen Kalk and some other el- terrorist elements they have connections to in Iran. Uh, and they killed Colonel Hassan Kodeh in his driveway in Tehran in late May. Then they you, they did a quadcopter suicide drone attack on the Parchin military complex. It was only a few dozen miles away from Tehran, uh, killed an engineer there. They there were uh, food. Po- there were all kinds of poisonings that killed uh, people in the aerospace industry, people in, um, uh, you know, uh, who are like, uh, you know, scientists and things like this um, uh, and, and basically in their military industry, but particularly in the aeros- in the aerospace uh, sector. And then they actually killed a couple of IRGC guys as well, or at least they were labeled as martyrs. And the implication was that Israel did it. So it's possible that they killed about six people uh, in total. But there have been several drone strikes on Iran this year from the Israelis. Uh, they hit a site um, in Kermanshah where they hit a big drone facility. They attacked a, a town called Tabriz where they actually killed some people, another drone facility. They're very focused on attacking Iran's uh, drone program. And... Uh, one of the so basically in the midst of this, Congress launches this massive effort, including a lot of Democrats, to tell Biden he can't return to the deal. And um, and also uh, 
Yeah, and it's 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 the alliance from hell. It's like you know Elaine Luria who wants to make it, uh, you know, get rid of the Constitution, Article One, Section Eight, so that Biden or whoever can go to war with China immediately if they attack Taiwan. Um, uh, Michael Gothamer or Josh Gothamer is this big Democratic uh, Party. Uh, Iran Hawk, Tom Cotton, Elliot Abrams, all these people come together in all their little groups and launch these massive PR campaigns against the JCPOA because they say that Iran is getting a nuclear weapon, that they're the greatest you know world sponsor of terror and all this stuff. Um, also, funny thing, Elliot Abrams was with a bunch of former U.S. officials, and they said that if you take the IRGC off the foreign terrorist organization list, which I think is what you're getting at about how they make all these concessions constantly, because that is what's happening. Iran yeah. continues to make concessions that get slapped away. He goes, if you do that, then it's a fr an, an affront to gold star families. This goes back to some propaganda back in the day about uh, that Scott debunks in enough already about how the Iranians were killing Americans. The RGC were killing Americans in uh, Iraq War II. And that stuff gets debunked. But the real ironic thing, Elliot Abrams is named as the... Uh, one of the main, you know, um, architects of the redirection policy in the site in the Seymour Hirsch article uh, in 2000, was it 2007, 2006 in the New Yorker. So this is a guy who decided because we put Iran's friends in power because me and my neocon friends are a bunch of idiots in Iraq War II, I'm going to back Al Qaeda. The guys who were just killing thousands of U.S. troops, we're going to back them and their allies because we're treasonous bastards. But, oh, yeah, if you take Iran's – the IRGC off the foreign terrorist organization list, it's an affront to Gold Star families and encourages more attacks. Yeah, right. So um, – and of course, they're under myriad sanctions already. The IRGC, this is their elite military unit, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, they're sanctioned for interfering in the 2020 election. They're sanctioned for, <laughs> they're for missiles and human rights abuses and all this shit. So it's at the National Iranian American Council. They have a great write-up about all this. And uh, so they could have easily done it. It's 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 a massive insult. Mark Dubowitz of the FDD, who I mentioned earlier, put it in – He it, this was put in place at the behest of guys like him. He wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal where he said, this is a big brick in the sanctions wall. And what it's supposed to do is prevent Democrats in particular, um, these weak – you know scumbags because they're like well i can't go back to the iran deal because i'm gonna look weak on terrorism uh and they're a bunch of hawks anyway but that's the point right yeah. so so um so they did that you know and elliot abrams wanted to make sure that they layered over sanctions and uh you know layers of sanctions over layers of sanctions over layers of sanctions to make it so yeah. complicated that it just becomes impossible to return to the deal he was bragging about this in the last they were announcing huge packages of sanctions every week uh, in the last uh, several couple of months or few months of Trump's administration. And yeah, so Iran basically has taken the FTO issue off the table, even though it's a massive insult and causes all kinds of problems um, for people who are conscripts who served in non-combat roles, who are like doctors, who are separated from their families because the wife lives in America and this guy can't get into the country. And there's a bunch of stories like this. They took that off the table. They... Um, Initially, there were indications that they were wanted. They wanted to get this IAEA probe off, um, which is about site. There's this, you know, unprocessed uranium particles, traces of them that were discovered at three undeclared sites that Israel notified the IAEA about years ago, and then the <laughs> IAEA discovered them. The Iranians have always been very suspicious of what actually happened there, yeah. and they think it could have been sabotage. 
So they wanted to get this off the table because every time they get close in uh, diplomacy to things going their way, the Israelis and the Americans use this issue and the IEA and the Europeans uh, go along with it, especially this year. Um, they just use it to attack Iran and beat them over the head with. So Iran cut a deal in March, I believe, where they said to the IEA, the director general, Rafael Grassi, they said, OK, look. We're sick of this stuff. We want to make a deal with you. We will provide you full documentation on these sites. We will give you everything we got. It's an open book. Let's get this finished so we can return to the deal because this is causing a lot of problems. Um, and so he says, okay, great. And Rotten Grassi seemed pretty uh, enthusiastic about it. I think they got it to him even ahead of schedule, but they provided him with everything, all their documents. And since then, they've never taken. They've ne they've been saying that Iran was totally uncooperative, and they didn't. Uh, we don't trust these documents. We don't uh, think they're giving us the full story. And the Americans and the Europeans censured them at the IAEA for being uncooperative. Uh, and um, so there was an indication that they were willing to take that issue off the table. But then Raisi gave a speech to his uh, supporters or a speech in Iran where he said. You know, to discuss a deal in the absence of getting rid of this inquiry is meaningless. And I think what he means is they they're just going to use this to to stop the deal whenever they want anyway. It's a it's a it's a huge open wound because um, they're being accused of something that they're not doing. The, these particles are not a proliferation risk, but it's framed in that way of this sort of thing like we don't know what's going on with the Iranian nuclear program. When meanwhile they have a 52 year record with the with the uh, IAEA of being um you know of not violating the non-proliferation treaty and not diverting their nuclear uh, energy, their nuclear energy, uh, their uranium to military purposes. And in fact, last year, you know, when they started enriching uranium to 60%, it's uranium hexafluoride, they enrich it to 60%. They did this after the Israelis attacked their main center for building centrifuges, their uranium enrichment facility, Natanz. They they did a sabotage attack, caused a huge explosion, power outages, destroyed you know centrifuges and all this stuff. The Iranians said, "Okay, I'll tell you what, we're going to enrich uranium to sixty percent to get the Americans back to the table because this was the situation was um, you know really bad at that time. As soon as the talks got announced, the Israelis attacked an Iranian ship in the Red Sea, and then they hit Natanz once the talks started. So they increased the enrichment at sixty percent after the Parliament demanded it, just like after they killed Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the scientist." Um, in uh, at the end of the Trump administration, it was a big deal, and the Parliament demanded you enrich uranium to twenty percent. Then to show them, uh, and it's 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 because they they nonviolently respond to like murders <laughs> and attacks and uh, and drone strikes and things like this. Um, not to mention that they bomb Syria and sometimes they kill IRGC members. I mean, that was a big deal. The Iranians, the one time they reacted this year really was when they fired ballistic missiles at a site in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan, which they said was a Mossad site, um, after a bunch of drone strikes that had gone on in Iran and this bombing in Syria that killed some IRGC members. But um, yeah, to your point, I mean, they keep getting, they get pushed constantly. And for all that they push back, it's very minimal. Um, yeah. And uh so they've done virtually everything. I mean, they uh, they wanted a grace period. All they were asking for, the last I heard, because they got close because an American official told Reuters. Okay, so, the, so Joseph Burrell, the EU wanted this deal to work because after the sanctions blitz on Russia has ultimately failed, but it mm -hmm. sent gas prices and energy prices in Europe so 
they're soaring to the extent that, you know, it, who knows, the winter is going to be crazy in Europe. I mean, with the amount of, we're already seeing lots of social unrest, these massive right. protests that went on in the Czech Republic, et cetera. Uh, they're going on in France right now. And, and uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see um, the fact that Joseph Burrell, the EU foreign policy chief, and Enrique Mora, the lead nuclear negotiator, went to Tehran a couple of times uh, to restart talks. Even the Qataris did this because the Americans just – they add sanctions. Israel uh, drone strikes Iran and kills a bunch of people, and then they bomb Syria or – and then and then we just add sanctions and blame Iran for the, quote, stalemate or whatever. Or, you know. <laughs> and then so, – so then they go to Iran. They uh, – they cut a deal and they restart talks. They revive them. Like, you know, they're on life support and then they they restart. And then that's when Israel, the first time that happened in May, that's when Israel launched their assassination campaign. And they wanted Iran to react, like you're saying, yeah. but they didn't. They remained steadfast. Uh, and they, that's when they even, I think it was in June, that's when they took off the IRGC, uh, the demand to have them removed from this foreign terrorist organization list. Mm -hmm. Then they got, they start, talks started happening. There was a session in Doha that went nowhere. And then there were, um, I think they reconvened in Vienna after Burrell put forward this final proposal. And so basically he said, look, I've done everything because he had told the Financial Times a month or a few couple months ago that, look, we need another crude supplier. Europe does. And he goes, and by the way, Biden could stand to use a diplomatic success you know, <laughs> so I love that line. Uh, and so they tried to get the deal together and the Iranians basically were asking crazy demands like, okay, so if you, if the Americans just violate the deal anyway, like we know they're going to, can we have a grace period for international businesses? So they have like two years before they have to just immediately stop and, and cut all their investments from our country uh, so that we can at least get some benefits from the deal. Uh, they were looking for... Um, you know, they were looking for guarantees uh, on uh, sanctions. They they would, you know, even the Israelis, They there was an article because the Israelis sent, they sent their national security advisor, they sent their defense minister, they sent the head of the Mossad to, the, to Washington to lobby Congress and the White House and the Pentagon and the FBI and all of it, the State yeah. Department against this. And there's, a, there's an article that Dave DeCamp wrote up at uh, antiwar.com where the Israelis are in the room with Jake Sullivan, Eyal Hulada, his counterpart from israel mm -hmm. and they're basically helping the american it's like they're co-writing the americans response to the iranians response to the eu proposal that's literally what the article said so like all these things that that uh iran was asking for which were very minimal it's just the constant thing it's just and then the israelis said no and then the israelis said no so we said no right. um so then uh the Iran, I mean, they, the negotiations have continued on, but basically at this point, it's looking like it's not going to happen because once they said, I guess the Iranians made clear that because uh, the Americans were saying, look, they've taken this IAEA thing off the table and they don't care about this FTO organization blacklist. So we're very close to a deal. And it's because the Americans did this. But then when Raisi said, actually, we still would like to have the IAEA probe taken off the table, that combined with all this Israeli pressure. um, and the fact that uh, the Europeans as well, they just uh, they issued a couple of joint statements alone. And then again at the IAEA with the Americans, just again, beating the Iranians over the head on this IAEA probe um, that and then the Americans launched several rounds of sanctions over the last few weeks over stuff that 
you know, there's not even evidence. It's like, oh, they committed a cyber attack in Albania and stuff <laughs> like this. And it's just like, you know, it's impossible. To, they they love just saying some foreign power we hate committed a cyber attack somewhere. So here's a bunch of new sanctions. Um, and so it's just looking very unlikely. And I'll add that uh, in August, the United States started bombing Syria again. Like over three days and killed a bunch of people. And they said all of that was a big message to Iran. That's what the Pentagon said. And then Israel started bombing Syria. That's, you know, in the same, it was like Tuesday through Thursday and they started bombing on Thursday. Um, and so the whole thing has just been a giant mess. Um, Biden's policy has basically been to encircle them with this mini NATO style alliance. They're trying to build with the Gulf Arab states and Israel. Uh, Israel wants America to lead it. But yeah, Trita Parsi has said we're essentially closer to war with Iran now than we have been um, in the la over the last uh, you know since Trump or Obama or Bush. He's much worse. And the um, what was the uh, oh basically, it's just fascinating to see the fact that um, the Iranians have said they're never going to expand, they're never going to enrich further than sixty percent uh, with the uranium. And uh, at this point, I don't see I'm not I don't know what more the Iranians can do, but we we are the policy looks like it's to goad them out of the nonproliferation treaty. And if they do do that, they may as well have a bomb at that point uh, because everyone's going to say that they do. Um, and uh, no, it's just it's just devastating. They've been they were in total compliance with the deal until 2019 when until 2018 when Trump pulled out. They only they waited a year after that with the sanctions being reimposed to expand their nuclear program. And yet they're demonized as, you know, these, you know, religious fanatic. Uh, the sponsor would, of terror. Yeah. Who would commit a Holocaust <laughs> all over again and nuke Israel. And Scott's got all these great quotes from Netanyahu and all these other Israeli officials in enough already saying, we're not, we're not scared that Iran's going to ever launch nukes against <laughs> us. Their real concern is that if, if Iran even has a latent nuclear threat, it can, it, the idea is, and I'm not sure how this would work in practice, to be honest with you, but their fear is, and Max Boot is quoted saying this stuff, is that Ar Iran would lose, or excuse me, Israel would lose their ability to act within the region however they wish. <laughs> like there would be a counterweight to their aggressive policies right. uh, if they lost their monopoly. Um, and so, um, but even if, even if Iran had nukes, you know, you can't, you, once you use nukes, you used them, and so it, it's not uh, it's not practical. But I don't know what you could do to get Israel to stop bombing uh, Syria, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, or to stop bombing Gaza. Or to you know they they've, they've come close. They've uh, launched some strikes last year in uh, southern Lebanon. Uh, so you know the whole thing is just absolutely crazy. The Americans in May were training, uh, or the head of CENTCOM was over there observing these massive exercises Iranians were carrying out, training for war with Iran. They uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, over spanning over ten thousand uh, uh, square kilometers, they were um, with hundreds of uh, more than a hundred aircraft and and submarines and all that stuff. They were training uh, or simulating repeated airstrikes on Iran's uh, civilian nuclear program. And the Pentagon, I think, just inked a deal, or the U.S. Biden's administration did, for Boeing to sell them refueling tankers that they would need for an attack on Iran. They. Uh, so the whole thing is just absolutely crazy. Uh, and then recently Biden flew more planes over the, over the Middle East as a message to them. So it's just – the it's very similar to China and Russia. It's just escalate to escalate. 
And then there's just no, there's virtually no diplomacy. Like, I don't know what more the Iranians could give up at this point uh, in order to get a deal done. Well, because Israel wants them to, we're supposed to give them, we have to put a credible military threat on the table. And here's the, it's nothing has changed. What the Israelis are demanding is the longer and stronger deal, which any democratic congressman idiot who comes to your door will tell you that. If you ask them, do you support the JCPOA? They'll just say, yeah, I support the Iran deal, but it should be longer and stronger. This actually happened to me, by the way. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what a guy said to me. But uh, they want what they want is us to basically strong arm Iran by threatening to go to war with them uh, into basically disarming. We want them to basically get they, the Israelis want them to get rid of their ballistic missiles and stop supporting their allies in the region. And that's basically what the Democrats want. Um, that was Biden's plan originally. Gareth was right. Gareth Porter was writing a bunch of stuff about that. That was the original plan was to maintain Trump's sanctions and basically strangle Iran into giving up those things that Trump wanted but could never get. All right, guys, um, I'm absolutely thrilled with the uh, show's new sponsor. Um, I am now sponsored and uh, have an affiliate through LMNT Electrolytes. Um, I have used these electrolytes for years. Um, back when I used to do a lot of fasting, in fact, I used to drink, sometimes I want to say up to seven a day, seven little packets. So um, the packets are full of all the electrolytes that you need to perform and hydrate yourself properly. Um you need sodium for pretty much every single function in your body, despite what um, a lot of people may tell you. Um, sodium doesn't actually cause a lot of the issues that uh, people kind of would have you believe. So um, just real quick to give you a little bit of facts. Um, you don't need sugar to hydrate. Electrolytes and water don't require glucose to pass through the gut. The average American consumes over 60 pounds of sugar a year. And um, when it comes to athletic performance, um, you can actually lose up to seven grams per day in hot climate. So um, make sure you click on the affiliate link below to get all your hydration needs. And like I said, I'm super stoked to have these guys um, teamed up with the podcast and uh, just make sure you get your uh, electrolytes through Element. All right, guys, thanks. Wow. Yeah, dude, that's a lot. Jesus. <laughs> um, I know you only got a few more minutes, but um, I wanted to hit on one more thing before we uh, clock on out of here. Um, I, I told you before we got on, I'm doing some digging on Steve Bannon. Um, he's a really, really shady character, but I feel he's been kind of key in the MAGA populist right becoming so hawkish on China. Um, he literally called for regime change in China. Now he didn't say the Americans should do it, but he's called for regime change. So, um, and I'm sure as you know, he's just it, it, awful on it. Um, there's a very good video yeah. of Thaddeus Russell talking to Michael Tracy about this. I, uh, Mike- I know exactly what you're talking about. That yeah. was an absolutely fantastic podcast. Um, if you had the ear of all the populist right, and you know me, Pat, and Reed, and you, and I think the good anti-imperialist libertarians have really tried to drive this home. Like, hey, these guys who are hawkish on China, we should be very, very careful before we consider them allies because like this is the next big issue i believe you had said that uh this could be the next giuliani moment with dave smith in china um if you had the ears of all the populist right wingers right now what would you tell them to say hey we shouldn't be so hawkish on china because this could go very very far south yeah because well frankly like daniel davis uh colonel daniel davis has said at defense priorities the Afghan war whistleblower um, has said uh, 
this is uh this is like this is a red line for them that we can't comprehend this is a matter of national sovereignty if they take this way more seriously than we ever could and if we go to war with them over taiwan first of all at best we will lose um ships men and and uh you know aircraft that the amount of the casualties would be worse than anything we've seen than Vietnam, and it would probably be much worse. And what basically what he lays out is the fact that China has the ability. Everybody needs to basically stop with this stuff because if we do get close here to war with China, they have the ability to launch nukes that can hit U.S. cities with their three-stage intercontinental ballistic missiles. Why are we? You know, my point with this was always with the Giuliani moment thing is. First of all, just explaining the Asia pivot, explaining that we're provoking the crisis, explaining that, uh, you know, putting the shoe on the other foot the way we should with Russia and NATO expansion uh, and the situation in Ukraine uh, and, you know, tearing up all these arms treaties like Trump did and then uh, encircling these countries and preparing for war with them and simulating war with them just off their shores and just off their borders like we did to Russia constantly and lead up to this war in Ukraine. Um, and so the important thing, I think, is also for Republicans to realize that this is Barack Obama's project. This is Hillary Clinton's project. It's not your right wing, your favorite right wing talk show host or even Steve Bannon or any of these guys. You know, they they talk a big game, but this is really Hillary Clinton's project. She wrote in foreign policy. It's, people can look it up. It's called America's Pacific Century. That's what this is all about. This is the new Cold War. This is China is the biggest of big ticket items. This is, as Jacob Hornberger says, they never intended to shut the cold wars down they always intended to restart them and both of them were restarted by democrats bill clinton and bill clinton and uh, barack obama that's who started all this stuff um so the republicans uh and the right wingers just need to understand that first of all this costs trillions and trillions of dollars we're getting close to 900 where was it 850 billion dollars um for the military budget and that's just the pentagon robert higgs the great econ austrian economist says he wrote a great piece back during the Bush years called The Defense Budget is Bigger Than You Think. And he says the rule of thumb is you just take that and you multiply it by two to see what the real national security budget is when you include the Department of Homeland Security, the interest on the debt, the VA, the uh, nuclear uh, weapons and the uh, energy department, um, you know, all the different ancillaries. So we're getting close to almost spending uh, $2 trillion a year on the empire. And the excuse constantly from the neocons, from the military, from Congress, it's always China, China, China. And um, I just, I mean, I think that we have to find something better to offer uh, Republicans. You know, freedom and prosperity or liberty and prosperity um, is not anything to sneeze at. Uh, there's no reason for us to have to go around looking for monsters to destroy. Most of that, all the stuff about China, uh, most of it is just pure propaganda anyway, just designed to rile people up. And one of the things that I predicted early on when I got into this stuff uh, was, first of all, that Biden would probably be worse than Trump. And what I thought would happen, and it just continues, it never ends, is that all of our domestic failures our ruling classes, domestic failures, and all of their exploitations and all their worst crimes, they're very often framed as ultimately Russian and Chinese abuses. Uh, and this comes through like whether the it's the Hunter Biden scandal or Russiagate. Like you said, this completely distorted framing when Biden's been the wor or much worse hawk on China than Trump or Obama was, yet he's framed as Beijing Biden. And we have um, recently we had the LP national account. I know uh, the guy the guys running that account are actually very good guys. I think somebody was just ignorant and made a mistake and, and they got sorted out, but it just, it's a good example. Somebody, he put out some tweet about how his I surprised, programs. Like, 
Yeah, he, yeah. Well, he it was something about bot era. I'm surprised Xi Jinping let you tweet this. Right. Which, you could exactly have said any liberal blue check idiot could have said that to uh Trump and say, did Putin allow you to text, you know, to tweet this? So it, you know, there's a lot to work on with the populist right, but I think ultimately what it is is it's their media climate. They're just in a and they're in a bubble. They don't understand that we are very close to war with China, and that it's the Democrats and the military-industrial complex and everybody that they claim to hate—the deep state, uh, the national security state—it's uh, the, them who are driving this whole thing. And the problem is, is you have a lot of guys like Pasovic and like Bannon uh, and these other guys who are just Pasovic. Yes, they they do it. You know, I I hate follow that guy. Um, <laughs> he actually like he's one of these guys where I I don't understand the appeal of him, and it's I don't know. I wish I did, but he he's one of these guys that he's just trying to like trigger anxiety in people and get them mad, and it, and it's like this constant like uh, uh, how do you put it? It's it's almost like unstable. Um, just recently he put out some video. You don't even know what you're looking at, looking at this. And I sent it, uh, I'm, I'll send it to Pat and see what he thinks. But they, uh, did you see he, he ran some, it's just some video of some account, uh, that has uh low followers and says, most of what I post is parody or half of what I post is parody. And it's just some, it says it's a sky, uh, bird's eye view of all these concentration camps in China for COVID. Uh, and he goes totally normal behavior. And randomly, he'll just tweet communists and stuff like this. Uh, and they're just, if you follow that guy, can't come up with too many more examples off the top of my head. But the guy, I mean, these guys, these China hawks in the new right, it's almost like they're just trying to take people's rightful resentment of the American ruling class and rechannel it into a new Cold War that was already declared by the Democrats, but just frame it in a way that appeals to another demographic. And I think that's what we're seeing across the board with a lot of foreign policy issues. Um, speaking of the LPNH tweet, I think I have my own opinions about all that, and I support uh, Reed and those guys. And I, I don't like the fact that people came down so hard. And I thought it was, I thought the response from Dave Smith was awful. Uh, but, uh, and there, and to treat Reed like that is just ridiculous. But I think, um, you know, since 2015, 2016, the political climate has been defined by the fact that people hate Hillary Clinton and John McCain. They're sick of that shit. They don't support these people who just want war with all of the empire's favorite targets. Um, they, you know, we that's why you see this almost division of labor thing that happens where the right wing, a lot of these guys are very bad on China, but they cosplay as being peaceniks when it comes to Russia or they do. Uh, you know, you have these guys that are totally beholden to Israel um, and uh, but they're good on, you know, ostensibly on some of this Russia stuff, but they're big China hawks. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a huge was a huge hawk on Syria uh, and, and, you know, saying on his campaign page, we should phase out Assad. Alan Omar said that pulling out of Syria would be a gift to ISIS. Um, you know, so there's all kinds of things where it's just like you have controlled opposition in all these different places. It's not just in the media um, or in the in politics. It's in the media as well. And, uh, you know, a good example is somebody like Tulsi Gabbard, who's, you know, just a huge hawk on on the war on terror. I mean, she still she puts out tweets on 9-11 that sound like they were written by, uh, you know, Fox, some Fox News writer for Bill O'Reilly back in 2003 or something. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
but she's very good on Russia stuff. And I think if I remember correctly on Julian Assange and things like this. So it's just, it's a much weirder climate, right? Because not everybody is going to look like John McCain. So it's going to be harder to see who's pushing propaganda and who isn't. Uh, and that's how, that's how good misinformation actually works uh, is you want somebody who at least has some credibility, but I think that they've major, they've definitely shifted. You know, you look at Tucker, somebody like that is a great example. And, and Robbie's one of the guys uh, who got me thinking about all this. I mean, he catches that stuff because um, for lack of a better right winger. No, no. And he's yeah. not, a, he's not a, I mean, he's a leftist, but he's almost exclusively focused on foreign policy. Right. What he really, what Robbie really is to me is a neocon watcher and he's an expert on them. He's, he's yeah. great. Uh, a very heavy agenda is the documentary people should really watch that he made. Um, but it, I think basically that it looks like they've sort of, and neocons do this. They read, they, they adapt to different, to changing times. Um, and what we've seen is a, a factional split. Some of them lined up with Trump and the populace, and some of them lined up and went blue and on and, and became Democrats and they hated Trump and all this stuff. But you, yeah. you're, you know, look at DeSantis, look at somebody like that who was a straight up neocon. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, look at his speeches on Iran. Joseph Salis Mullins wrote a great piece about this for antiwar.com about, you know, what an Iran hawk he is speaking at the Hudson Institute. Uh, he's a big China hawk. Obviously, yep. he's uh, criminalizing dissent against Israel and, or attempting to. And uh, and in many cases, he is. Um, the guy's a massive hawk. And you look at these guys from the community of present danger China, people like Bannon, James Woolsey, Frank Gaffney. These guys lined up with Trump and uh, they're all China hawks. And if you look at um, the best example of this is Michael Tracy wrote a piece called the America First Policy Institute, America First Policy Institute. And right there, Trump threw a million dollars there and gave his first speech in D.C. by going to this thing. And um, Michael Tracy went there, the, the great journalist, and he went to cover all this. There's people there saying we need to send uh, Michael Waltz, who's a Republican out of Florida, who just went to Kiev and talked to Zelensky with a delegation and said, we ought to send advisors here. Uh, and then he goes to this thing and he gives a huge speech to roaring applause about how we should send advisors to uh, to Ukraine, military advisors, just like the British are doing, like these other NATO special forces and get involved uh, in the war with boots on the ground. And uh and he frames it as like, well, I'm just saying we should send advisors. And he goes, you know, the British are doing it, but that's, you know, more hawkish than Biden is on this uh, right now anyway. And uh, you have Joni Ernst there saying we ought to beat the Russians to a bloody pulp and make sure that they have to go crawling back to Moscow on their hands and knees and all this real, I mean, insanely hawkish rhetoric. Turns out John Bolton's longtime right-hand man and chief of staff, Fred Flights, is the vice chairman of the America First Policy Institute. Newt Gingrich was there boosting <laughs> Pelosi's visit to Taiwan uh, and getting huge applause breaks for his support for Nancy Pelosi and her trip. And uh, Newt Gingrich was there, and Gingrich said that this is going to be like the Heritage Foundation was for the Reagan administration in its mm -hmm. first four years, uh, where you basically you build the brain trust, and then they go in and they have all the policies ready to go for when Trump comes back, presumably in 2024, and wins office again. And uh, but basically, they're setting up almost like a 
you know, it's like their PNAC for for W or something. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see. But they are co they're deliberately the worst Hawks. Like John Bolton's right hand man, who's also just when he's not working for Bolton, he's working for Frank Gaffney. Uh, and so they're basically this guy's a straight. These are straight up. He's a straight up neocon. And so, but they're calling it America first. And like I said, a lot of these populist right guys are very. Um, shaky when it comes to foreign policy big boosters of the abraham cords a lot a lot of them jd vance said biden has this obsession with returning to the iran deal so 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 i just don't trust these guys but i think that the the intention of the new right to be anti-war not new right let's say populist right it's too broad to say new right um that's a good thing but people like Tim Pool and a lot of these other charlatans are piping in all this propaganda about, you know, everybody's favorite enemies on that side. And so basically what our role is as libertarians is to give them the truth and to have a bunch of Giuliani moments. And I think the main one we need right now from people like Dave is to uh, challenge them on this war with China and uh and and this policy against china because it's the empire has determined that they are the the number one enemy russia is seconded in the national defense strategy and like i said this is the greatest military buildup since world war ii uh and it's this is how they're going to justify from here on out all these expenditures on the military and it's just the costs are just going to continue to mount and as soon as the interest rates go up you know we're going to go we're the next crash is going to make 2008 look like nothing so and meanwhile, we're just spending more than ever, but including on the national security state. And so I just don't understand how the right wing wants to support a policy that's going to bankrupt the working class. Um, if you have issues with trade and ch with China and all this stuff, I agree with you because, you know, we're, we're libertarians. And, you know, the, what you were saying about it seems like a good deal for all the talk about the trade deficit and stuff like this. But if you want to bring manufacturing home or whatever, that seems to me to be something that, again, that can be if you're I don't believe in democracy, but I think the American people can probably work out something like this. What we're not addressing is the military buildup with China. And the problem is, is you have people who are calling for decoupling like Joe Kent is saying our number one national security priority should be decoupling with China in the midst of this buildup. And this advancement on the Taiwan policy and making war more likely. Well, if you decouple with China, which seems very impractical right now, but they're trying it in certain places like Xinjiang and, and different areas. Um, and and Biden just recently, uh, he's there's talk that he's going to put out an executive order to severely limit U.S. investment in China, in Chinese companies and technology. Um, so we're seeing more and more policies like this, and it's all totally bipartisan you know, um, the Chips and Science Act and all that stuff. Uh, it's all, all this talk is, it's all right down the middle. Cause you'll hear even like Blake Masters saying we ought to be building semiconductors in the United States and stuff like that. And, and it's just, it's very interesting to see how everything is just lining up. So I think almost, you almost want to fight the right from the right and tell them that this is the Democrats project and it's the military industrial complex. And all it's going to do is get our brothers and sisters killed overseas in some war they have no business being in. And that Joe Biden of all people is the one who's actually making it, he's going to make it happen with this policy he has right now. So, um, I think the big, what we have to do is basically show them that they're being bamboozled. They're being lied to by these figureheads on the, uh, on the right. And then if they, if they change their mind, that's great. They can be a part of our movement, but I don't think we should soften our message. I think that the opportunity to do that has long since passed and we probably should never do that. I, I mean, 
I'm open to hearing somebody explain why that's wise sometimes, but we've waited too long. I mean, our movement is 11 years behind the Pentagon or behind the, uh, the whole military industrial complex on this entire project. The Asia pivot was announced in 2011. Most people don't even know uh, about this stuff. Our movement doesn't, it acts like it's just not happening for the most part. Um, so, you know, we have to smarten up and get uh, wise quick. And Pat's whole thing about the, you know, debunking the Uyghur genocide propaganda, that is exactly, I mean, that's the weapons of mass destruction of this war. Mm -hmm. And um, they're just, they're not committing a genocide. He's the best guy to go to for all that stuff. He's got a Absolutely. terrific documentary called Stain of the Century that everybody should check out. Um, but that is... I mean, they're they're building a Holocaust narrative. And Steve Bannon, I've heard people on his show, uh, Amanda Milius and Posobiec, call Xi Jinping like Hitler and all kinds of stuff, say that they're a bunch of Nazis. And um, yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I it's, it's very scary times right now. But I think that's why we have to be strong and we have to uh, be bold with all of this. And I don't think, if you look at the Giuliani moment, you just see that Ron didn't say to people, he never pulled, he didn't pull punches on foreign policy. If he had pulled punches on Iran policy or something like this, just to win friends with the right, that would have been such a mistake. And we would never have had the Ron Paul revolution. You and I might not be doing what we're doing right now. So it is imperative that, you know, people like Dave and the leadership of the Mises caucus, now that we, that the libertarian party uh, has this, you know, we're in a much better situation undeniably than we were in my lifetime. Um, so, you know, right now is an incredible opportunity. And I think that the, uh, I think the party has the chance to just be for a little while, and then we can go back to doing everything else we wanted to do. But I think we should spend probably like 60% of our time, maybe just being the most prominent, loudest voice for the anti-war movement on all these different issues. Um, look, the, the economic war against Afghanistan is a great one, but just being the loudest voice for this in the, on the American political stage. Uh, and if we do that, we could bring in all the right people. And I don't mean in left or right. I mean, on the left and the right, yeah. all the right people with the right intentions who are willing to gr get together with us. Like they got together with Ron Paul, even when they had disagreements with him because they were anti-war, we can bring those people in and we can make something really special happen and have a real impact. Otherwise, I'm not sure exactly how we're going to get uh, anything done. Yeah, I, I I don't know either. And I really do believe if we're going to say that we have some kind of relationship with these people with big platforms and that they like us, and I, I kind of question that, um, if we're going yeah. to say that they're going to have us on with open arms and they're going to invest in our ideas, we can't pull punches with them. And we have to say, look, you are carrying the deep state's fucking water on this one. You are leading the charge or at least leading from the back the charge that will end civilization as we know it. And this is because of the fucking Democrats, as you said. And these people hate Democrats and hate the woke and hate the left so much, but for some reason on this one issue, they're willing to fucking carry all the water for it. Every single issue is we can't focus on Ukraine or Russia because we have to build up with China. Well, how the only we reason Holly voted against NATO expansion. Mm -hmm. And Josh Rogan, the yep. neocon, Bill Crystal's protege, wrote this piece recently uh, for the Washington Post, where he said basically, you know, um, you know, the left. He, he said left and right, but he should have said liberals and maybe right. But he said the left hates Russia and they, they want to back off China. I've never heard anybody say that, by the way. No. But then he goes, and the right hates China and they think we should back off Russia. He goes, 
and I wish they both hated Russia and China equally the way I do. But you know what? We have such responsible lawmakers in the House and in the Senate who vote for all of it. So that's the situation. They have a the neocons are very pleased with the situation right now. Yes, they would prefer that everybody hated China and Russia equally as much as they do. But right now, it's the way the propaganda network, the way the media climate is working, things are going to plan. And there's enough support on the ground that they can they can actually put forward things like the Taiwan Policy Act. And in the midst of a war in Ukraine, put uh, you know. Ex try to expand NATO. The only Turkey's the only thing standing in the way of this, but bringing in Finland and Sweden into NATO. And when they asked Michael Tracy wrote a piece about this and talked to Scott about it, um, the show just came out recently on his show. Um, Michael Tracy uh, got a quote from there's a quote from Rand Paul in his article about this, where Rand Paul says because he didn't he voted present, which yeah. was embarrassing right. on this NATO expansion. He goes in the new world. This new world, I'm less adamant about opposing NATO expansion. So we are just, I mean, things are just, it's a very bad situation. This is a guy who made a huge stand against bringing Montenegro into NATO. Mm -hmm. John McCain called him a Russian stooge and all this stuff. <laughs> so, but we, you know, yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's, it's, and it's, yeah, it's new, it's nuclear war. This is no less dangerous than what's going on with Russia. Not a, not a bit. They have about, they have a few hundred nuclear weapons, but they have enough to end our civilization. And it would it would go into it would be total nuclear war and and Russia would get involved, too. I mean, the whole thing is absolutely omnicidal, let alone suicidal. Uh, and um, there's just no excuse for the American people to want to go to war with any of these countries, Russia or China. And it's like especially when, you know, all the blood we have on our hands already that we really want to pick a fight with these nuclear superpowers right now who haven't attacked us, who haven't, you know, we're the ones over there preparing for war with them. The American people, we have to like make, it's so funny, like uh, Pat and I were talking about this on the phone today. You look at like what we're doing in Taiwan. They, they have to, like Tim Pool has to scare the shit out of people about TikTok to get people to go, China's interfering in our affairs. Like they they're degrading our culture yeah. as if we had some wonderful culture right. that it's just TikTok is the is what that's what's fucking it up. It's you know <laughs> not <laughs> so so uh, yeah man I dude I totally agree with you. They can't pull punches and you can't just sit there when they're saying you know they have assembly lines with women that they're forcibly sterilizing and raping one after the other for sport. Right. You can't just sit there and go. Yeah, well, we've committed a lot of bad, you know, we've committed some war crimes too. And like, it's just weak because if it's like sitting there while they're saying Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. And then in the meantime, throughout the other, the rest of that show, you just keep saying, we're in total agreement. We're in total agreement. Like it's, it's crazy uh, to see what's happening. But I, um, but listen, I like, I like what's happened with the party. I just think that we could we have such an opportunity right here, and I think we just have to realize that we're in much – the situation overall is just much worse than I think any of us could have anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to adjust, and I think that's where a lot of the dissent is coming from right now. It's just like people – we just seem to all be on different pages, and we need to get on the same page, and we need to focus on foreign policy and focus on China because it's getting ignored, and it's the next – it's – other than Russia right now, it's going to be the next big uh, 
because there's really nowhere to go from here. If a war starts over Taiwan, uh, like you were saying, the the that result, nuclear war, it could happen very fast, and um, we won't have time to explain it to everybody. Yeah, it, it's sometimes I think we're doomed, and sometimes I think we're not. Um, hopefully, voices like ours can kind of get out there enough and really explain to people like, look, you don't want to do this. And there's zero fucking reason you want Joe Biden leading the charge into fucking extinction. Like just, just think about what we're doing here. And the fact that we have all these Republicans that we're supposed to cozy up to carrying water for it. It's, it's inexcusable to me, dude. It's, it's fucked up. And uh, the, the, the big, like Marsha Blackburn who keeps calling Russia and China, the axis of evil. She goes, uh, what'd she say? Uh, she goes, and I noticed they do this a lot. When Biden's comments about Taiwan, about us having a defense commitment, get walked back ostensibly by the White House, mm -hmm. the right-wingers always point at that and go, oh, that's weakness. <laughs> so they go, she said, if his uh, White House staff can walk all over Biden like this, imagine what Putin and Xi Jinping are going to do. So just, you know, it's never enough. Just always agitating and pushing for more. And I thought... I thought the Pelosi visit might wake some Republicans up nope. to see that actually this is the Democrats. They own this policy. Republicans can try all they want. This is the Democrats project. I mean, Biden is proving that and Obama proved that. And, um, you know, if you go back and you read Garrett's piece about, like I was saying about the changes in the Taiwan policy, where they discarded this thing about dual deterrence, where they would tell the Taiwanese, you know, cool it on all the independence rhetoric, because you might start a fight here and you don't know if we're going to back you up. We don't want any of this to go down. And then we'll, they say to the Chinese, but we have strategic ambiguity, so you don't know what we might do. So just don't, you know, keep the status quo. This is okay. You know, you guys have a good relationship, trade relationship. Let's just keep things, you know. Uh, as much as possible, peaceful in the strait. And then they switched. They started backing these independents, like Sign Wen, the Democratic Progressive Party. And her uh, vice president is actually much more hawkish than she is. And he he's going to – he may take power here soon. It could be very risky. But uh, he explains in there, when they were starting the Asia pivot, you had John McCain. Uh, you know, He was one of the leaders of demanding – that this policy get accelerated under under Obama, calling him weak for not doing enough phone ops, you know, sailing warships, you know, within territorial waters of Chinese islands and and uh, reefs and 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 things in in the South China Sea, um, and just you know, it's despicable because it's always the same people that are pushing this. Uh, Lindsey Graham and Bob Menendez are the ones who are putting forward this. Uh, Bob Menendez is this Democratic. He's the chair, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, one of the biggest hawks in the entire government. And he they're putting forward a policy. Like I said, it's 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 going to it's this huge, robust sanctions regime on China, makes them a major non-NATO ally, elevates their stature in all these international institutions, uh, treating them like an independent state, uh, expediting arms sales. And, um, you know, uh, they, they put together a war reserve fund for Taiwan, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and it's just but but six point five billion dollars in aid making Taiwan as much of a, uh, you know, on the short list of the countries that receive the most military aid from the U.S. So it would be Ukraine, Israel, Jordan, Egypt and Taiwan. And that's where we're headed. I mean, we have. Um, there were there's the Taiwan Invasion Prevention Act, like I said, where they want to make it so that we go to war immediately if there's an attack of Taiwan. Right. No, no deliberation, no authorization of force, none of that. And no, God forbid, a declaration of war. And uh, 
but all these hawks, you know, they wanted they they they've been waiting for a bill like this. I mean, this is this is it's not like if Tom Cotton is just putting forward this idea like we should decouple and you know, we should go to strategic clarity. This is as close to that as you're going to get, the strategic clarity switching from strategic ambiguity to say like they're a major non-NATO ally. Right. But you know, the policy hasn't changed. That's why Pat's <laughs> getting into about gaslighting. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know when they're going to vote on that, but everybody should be keeping their eye on that. In fact, libertarians should be the it would be great if the movement could raise hell about the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022. And you can just frame it as like this is recklessness uh, from the Democrats and fucking Lindsey Graham. You know, everybody hates Lindsey Graham. I don't know when we got to this point where we forgot all this stuff. We should be always railing against these policies. Um, and it's always the same people. And this should this should be easy. You know, I think uh, even the stuff like McCain, everybody hates John McCain. The jo Donald Trump made fun of him, said, I like people who didn't get caught, you know, and all this stuff. And he still won office. So give me a break. We need to, I mean, um, I don't think anybody, I, I think everybody should have their own messaging, basically. I don't mean to get in too involved in that dispute, uh, you know, for the different affiliates or whatever. But I think that it's important to be bold and keep keep that issue at the front. And you might want to shake some people up. Also, I'll just add on that one issue. A lot of leftists came out in support of that, uh, whether or not people want to admit that. Caitlin Johnstone wrote an article about it and said it was she thought it was great. Uh, the LPNH tweet about Meghan McCain and that whole thing. So, yeah. but I'm just saying that we we could stand to get start a little controversy about these guys, and maybe that's not the right way to do it. But we should really do something to get this issue about how we're starving the people of Afghanistan to death, causing a massive famine crisis that threatens to kill more people than the war itself. Uh, the JCPOA and the buildup for war with Iran, the buildup to war with China and this Taiwan Policy Act and all this stuff and the warship transits to the Taiwan Strait and all this and all the escalations with uh, Russia. There's a bunch of other issues. We talked about Syria, too. I think if we just launched, you know, huge campaigns as a movement, as as and as the party right now on these issues, there's no telling what we could do. There's no telling because the American people, I think, well, they always have. It's always been like this, but we they, it requires a lot of propaganda, as you, as we know, mm -hmm. to get Americans on board for all this. So once they know that there's a real other option and they start get, stop getting inundated with this constant agitation propaganda and this it's, it probably gives you a little bit of psychosis to constantly be hearing all this stuff about China and Russia and Iran and just feeling so threatened. I mean, we we grew up in the 9/11 era, but it's it's um and we remember how scary all that was just being a kid and thinking that, you know, you get on a plane, you see some guy who looks Arabic and now the plane might go down or something. Uh, the American people are terrified of these countries that don't threaten us, except we're trying to start war with them and they have nuclear weapons. It's just it should be a slam dunk to to get people to stop and and, and snap out of this right now. Right, dude. Absolutely. Uh, like I said, I know you were on a little bit of a time restraint, so I guess we'll uh, close right here. Dude, if you got any other thoughts, anywhere people could find you, go ahead, uh, leave it. And we'll uh, rock and roll, man. Yeah, thank you very much, Kyle. I, I would love to come back soon. I got uh, people. Yeah, man, please. This is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I uh, would send people to the libertarianinstitute.org um, and listen to Conflicts of Interest and read antiwar.com. That's where you'll see all my stuff. And, uh, you know, check out the Institute because we got the best team of writers and podcasters. We got Scott Horton, Keith Knight, uh, Kyle Anslone, Patrick McFarlane, uh, Tommy Salmons. Um, 
you know, Jim, we got Jim Bovard, uh, William Van Wagenen, uh, Lori Calhoun, um, and Kim Robinson. And it's just, it's, it's, we're putting out a lot of exciting stuff right now. We're running more articles than we used to on our blog section and start, we're getting a lot more activity there. Uh, and everybody's just putting out killer content and, um, and Pat's also putting out some more documentaries and stuff. And so keep an eye on that, man. It's the best libertarian Institute is the best thing happening in the movement right now. And I'm, and I'm really proud of it. Absolutely. And I'm glad I've really started to recently kind of ramp up my uh, listening and reading of everything over there. And I can't recommend people to go do that enough. Yeah, dude, I, I think I'm going to have to listen to this a couple times over and hopefully <laughs> everyone feels the same. And uh, hopefully they got a lot out of it because I know I did and I got a lot to sit and think about. And hopefully people realize that this situation with China is getting bad and we can't drop the ball on this one. Yeah, Absolutely. It's uh, this is the most important thing for us right now, I think. Um, and we're, and we're way behind, Absolutely. uh, and the country is too, but the libertarian movement shouldn't be, no, we dude, should I always be, yeah, we got to keep up with the Pentagon. And like I said, <laughs> you can turn it into a partisan thing. I don't care. I'll, I'll rail against the Democrats. I'll blame the whole thing on the Democrats. As long as we start talking about it. Right. And I think our conversation is long overdue. All right, Connor, thanks for coming on, man. And like I said, we'll definitely do it again, man. Thank you, Kyle. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.